0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, possibly your favorite Unity Church Unity Podcast. That used to be part of our intro. It was cool. I am here today with my co-host, y'all's favorite uh, TJ Tiberius one Blackwell. Hello, hello! Welcome. And today we are joined by author and theologian uh, Marie Lore. Uh, she has two master degrees: one from Episcopal Divinity School, another from Boston School of Theology um murray thank you so much for joining us today thank you and today we're going to be talking about uh she has three books out um the last two are part of a series and today we're going to be talking about uh her most recent it is return from exile revelations from an anchoress in saint augustine um not saint augustine i learned that right. listening to other podcasts she's been on. <laughs> um yeah yeah when you live in florida it's augustine <laughs> that's right uh yeah. So we are excited to talk about that book and just some about who Julian of Norwich it was, is. Um, but before we do, we always like to review some audience engagement. And um, as we get near the end of the year, I just like to look at some of our numbers just because I'm a numbers guy. And we had this is an interesting one, almost exactly double the amount of shares this year that we did last year. So you guys have really been trying to spread this more and we're very thankful for that. Cause you know, honestly no marketing or anything really is as effective as people just sharing it with someone they know. Cause when I get a podcast, that someone shared with me, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to listen to that. Well, it depends who shared it. TJ shared it. I might not. It's probably about hockey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, uh, we like to start with a silly question, just because silliness is my favorite form of unity. Just it's just so hard to argue when you're being silly. (laughs) So today uh, we're going to start just by a simple question. TJ and I'll answer first. Give you time to think about it. What sporting event do you think Santa Claus would be worst at? TJ, would you like to begin? I can.
1: Uh, I think Santa would probably be awful at soccer. Hmm. why uh he's just not built for it you know i don't want to be rude but (laughs) uh, doesn't really have the physique and i've never seen his uh you know hand foot coordination so
0: yeah yeah i was actually thinking basketball i don't know why i just don't imagine him being that tall how do you think he gets the presents into the chimneys that's true he just throws but like no, what? no, he goes down the chimney. Not anymore. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm just wrong then. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Ms. Marie, uh, what sporting event do you think Santa Claus would be worst at?
2: Well, I think he'd be pretty terrible at all of them for all the reasons that TJ said. <laughs> but I, I have this image of him on a surfboard and I, it's kind of hard to imagine. But think about it.
0: That's true. That, yeah. that probably would be very, very difficult. Yeah.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not, not a known sportsman, Mr. Claus, but, uh, but we, still real show, <laughs> yeah, we still love real show. We still love him. But uh, one thing we believe is extremely useful for church unity here on our show is hearing people's stories. Uh, would you mind sharing the elevator pitch version of your testimony for us?
2: Yeah, I I feel exactly about. Telling stories as, as you seem to. So listening to each other's stories is, is part of my faith journey. Um, in my work of leading spiritual autobiography and writing groups of people who are working on their spiritual autobiographies, I've heard others' stories of faith, of healing, and of finding oneness with the source. And these are true stories that have emboldened my own faith. And I think that all of us are on that continuum, what I call the continuum of storytellers. And it brings us all together in search of the truth, the truth with the capital T.
1: All right. Man. Uh, so what church are you affiliated with and uh, what makes it unique?
2: Well, this is going to blow your mind because it's not any church that you're necessarily going to be familiar with, but... It's something that happened out of the um out of the pandemic. So because the pandemic closed so many local churches, um, a global church has emerged, and that global church is online. And so I've become a member of what's called the Garden Congregation at Canterbury Cathedral in England. And I'm praying with thousands of people from around the world. And the best part for me about this whole experience is that I sort of think of it as the church of the Blue Dome, because it's all done outdoors in the garden, where the birds and they have the farm animals out all the time during these, during these worship services. And it just is such a refreshing and open approach to church that's all-inclusive,
0: that's, That's awesome. 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 Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, what, what denomination is it? Do you does Yeah, it... it's Anglican. It's Anglican. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I kind of figured England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we've, we've had a few Anglican priests on, um, from the ACA on the show and all great guys. We, mm-hmm. we like all, both of them. <laughs> yeah. And um, the
2: Anglican church also has women priests. So there you have it.
0: Oh yeah. That's true. We talked oh, yeah. about that one of the uh-huh. few yeah it's um yeah actually in a series coming up we're gonna do about church offices uh, when I, I interview Steve Lanklow and he talks about it in, in the ACA how like certain parts of it are okay with women being in certain offices and then others parts aren't okay and it's just uh it was interesting to hear him just kind of describe the debate, debate as someone who is in it to someone who is not in it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, interesting. Mm-hmm. Good for you guys. Um, yeah. Uh, so your book return from exile Revelations from an anchoress in St. Augustine. Um, it's all about Julian of Norwich. Uh, what can you tell us about her as far as her place in history as a woman in the church and as a mystic, you know, what was her overall message kind of,
2: well, um, Really happy to talk about Julian, but i I want it to be known that the book is not necessarily about Julian. So Julian of Norwich is a figure who appears in and out, weaves in and out of my story, but it's my spiritual autobiography. And the theme of the book really is exile. And the way that I see that is that we're all in exile, that we're all trying to get home, that we're all on a spiritual journey, that this is our pilgrimage. And so I use that theme of exile. But I focus on her story because she was in self-imposed exile, and she did this in the 14th century. She's now known as a mystic, but at the time in the 14th century, she was a woman who lived through the Black Death Plague, which also parallels with our time of pandemic. (laughs) Um, When I started writing the book, it was pre-pandemic. I went on a pilgrimage to her anchorage, a solo pilgrimage to her anchorage in uh, the summer of 2019. So this was just a few months before the pandemic closed down the whole world. So as that was happening, her story of the Black Death and living through that came together in my mind. I mean, she was now, I was now able to understand more of what her experience might have been like in the 14th century. So she lived as a self-imposed exile in what's called an anchorage, and there really aren't any anchorages today, but in those days, it wasn't that uncommon. There were about 300 women, some men, who chose to live in these small rooms, these cells that were attached to churches. And their decision to do that had to be sanctioned by the powers of the church And they also had to be able to self-support. So Julian had um, benefactors. She had people name her in their wills, and she was able to make the decision to go there. So the fascinating thing about being in Anchorage is this. Once you go in, you never come out. And so it's a commitment for life. And you're a solo person in there. It's not like living in a Monastery or living in a convent, which were also available at that time and still are today, but the Anchorage was a solo experience. Huh. She was also serving in a capacity um, that's unique to an Anchorage, to an anchress, which is what she was called an anchress. Uh, she had a window that looked out onto the street. And so when I was sitting in her Anchorage, I can tell you that Sitting in that anchorage and hearing street sounds out there is a really amazing experience because you're in this place that you are never coming out of and you can hear the world going on out there. But she had one window that looked out onto that street and she would do um, spiritual direction is what we would call it today with Mm -hmm. people from the village so villagers would come looking for spiritual advice and um, just want to be closer to God through somebody who was living this life so that she could be as close to God as possible, which is what brought her into the anchorage in the first place.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, That's I mean, cool.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Really fascinating. I actually never heard of an Anchorage until we started, or Julian for that matter, until we started doing some of the research for this episode. Um, now, I saw where she was, I believe she was the earliest female to write a book in the English language, but it was like 200 years after she wrote it before it was finally published. Is that is that right?
2: That's about right. Um, so I don't think she set out to become the first woman to write a book in English. But it so happened that she wrote in English, which was very unusual for the time. So people wrote and spoke. I mean, the church language was Latin. And this is the Roman Catholic Church we're talking about. And she was um, part of that completely. I mean, she's living attached to the church. But she wrote her revelation, a revelation of love in English. And these manuscripts were taken from the Anchorage at some point. And they were held by people who knew they had value. And these were um, some nuns and some monks Mm. who decided to act as scribes, which was actually to take the words that she had written and put them into um, the language that, that could be understood by all and to put those out there. And so at that time, which was, you know, I don't know, sometime in the 15th century, these manuscripts resurfaced and they're claimed by, or, or I shouldn't say claimed, they're now found in the British Library, Westminster Abbey, um, a place in France. And I did go to the British Library and I had a chance to see these manuscripts that were handwritten by the scribes, not by her hand. We don't think there's a remaining um, original document. But because there were these manuscripts, these manuscripts were then in the public domain. And somebody 200 years after Julian's death took the book out of obscurity, took the manuscript out of obscurity and turned it into the book that we know today as a, a revelation of divine love.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, And just interesting tidbit for people who, I don't know, just like history. Um, so her lifetime when she wrote that and everything was before the reformation and between then and when it was actually published is when the reformation took place. So a lot of um, you know, at the time it was all Catholic. Once it gets published, I believe she's um, claimed by both the Anglican and the Catholic church sort of, right?
2: That's correct. And they each have a feast day for her and it's within three days of each other. And it's said mm-hmm. to be when she had the revelations Um, She was on a deathbed. I should explain this. So at the age of 30, she was on her deathbed. And presumably it had something to do with the Black Death Plague. And during that three-day period when it was expected that she would die, she had these visions. And these visions were of Jesus Christ's passion. So his vision, her vision of him on the cross, dying on the cross. And they were extremely vivid. And she was relating to that. And then she didn't pass away. And those were the visions that she had a real burning need to write about. And so that is what happens when she is now 50 years old. She decides she needs to explore what those visions meant. Um, She wants to understand them. But mostly what she needs to know is why was she shown these visions? And she asked this question a lot. Why me? And Mm -hmm. she's in the Anchorage for years and years writing everything. So the book has 85 chapters and right. She had 16 visions and the book has 85 chapters. So she's really extrapolated the (laughs) visions into a communication between her and God, which is all very interesting uh, to read about. But it takes another 15 years after she finishes writing, before she gets the answer to her question. And it's her actual final vision that we're aware of, where she gets the answer from God why it was shown to her. And the answer is for love. Why was it shown to you? For love. Who showed it to you? Love. And that's what Julian's message really is about, God is love. And her message is incredibly hopeful. It's full of hope during a time when the church was actually not a very hopeful message to people. It was a time when the messages were, uh, God is an angry God. God is a punishing God. You are actually being punished through this plague for your sins. And she took that and turned it around so that people could hear, "This is a loving God; God is with us."
1: Mm. But uh, so, what led you to include Julian of Norwich's, you know, legacy in your book?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I wasn't so sure I would I would do that, but what really came to me is um, the way that I was experiencing my own space, my own sacred space in my home, which is a small enclosed room that looks out onto the San Sebastian River. So it's attached to the house, like an anchorage is attached to a church. Mm -hmm. And I spent most of my time writing there. And Julian was one of those figures that I had learned a lot about on my way through divinity school. Like You know, maybe some of you are encountering some some characters that just resonate with you. And so as a female and as a woman of her time, who is now called a theologian, um, it resonated with me. Her story did. And the more time I spent there in my own Anchorage, which I became attached to in that way, I was thinking more and more about her and how had she done this? How did she actually live in this space? And how did she feel living in that space? So I did all my research and I read all that I could about her and everyone else's work about her. And then I decided I would go see for myself what this anchorage looked like and what it felt like to be in the anchorage. So once I did that, she had to be in the story.
1: Right. Yeah. And now you're probably the world's leading Julian of Norwich expert.
2: Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, no, there are actually, I would say the scholars out there um, Hmm. have a different finger on the pulse of Julian's story. I Hmm. look at my connection with Julian as um, a spiritual connection. And I Hmm. feel that she is um, a very relatable person for me. And I think for readers of the book, she can become a relatable woman Because she had to make choices that we make in even our lives today, not the least of which was, what was she giving up to do what she did? Which means, in a word, everything.
1: Right. Uh, So speaking of the readers of your book, uh, who is the main target audience? And uh, what do you want them to get out of it?
2: I don't feel there's a target audience as as the question is put to me I think it is really a book that speaks to a lot of different people certainly it's going to speak I think to women of a certain age but it's also going to speak to everyone who understands that there are transitions in life that we make we cross over thresholds at different periods in our lifetime and so the 30 year old transition is is part of Julian's story because that's when she had her near-death experience. And I talk about that in the story as related to my daughter, my mother daughter, Mm. part of the story, which resonates with anybody who has kids or anybody who's been a kid and has to cross over that threshold where you separate Mm. from the family. And then Later in life, at the age of 50, it doesn't have to be exactly at the age, but in that time Mm -hmm. frame, there are other transitions that happen. And this is for all of us. And so things happen in places in our life where we have to make choices and we have to cross over thresholds, leave things behind, make choices um, and discover again who we are. So I think that all readers who understand that this is a life journey that we all are on together. um, We'll be able to tap into those, to those places.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, My church over the weekend, um, Patrick was actually talking about, uh, I think, I think the title of the sermon was like, what's next. If it wasn't, that should have been the title. We said that a lot, but uh, it was the third week of Advent. Right. so it was all about joy you know what's next and hes talking about these transitions and just finding joy in the transitions and even you know that can be hard sometimes so especially if you're transitioning to an anchorage I guess <laughs> it might I think be they are hard, but...
2: yeah I agree I agree with you Joshua I think they are hard transitions and we don't do it like all at once. It's not like you know you open the door you you step through you stand on that threshold place for a very long time. And in that threshold place, what we call the liminal space, the borderlands, you're not in the next place yet, but you're really not in the old place anymore. You're in the in-between place.
0: Yeah. Yes. Would you say this book is mostly to help people who are in that in-between space then?
2: Gee, I hadn't thought of it as specifically that, but I think if you're in an in-between space... Uh, you would really see this as um, a way to understand how that, how that in between place, that no place, feels, and relate to that.
0: Awesome, yeah. And It's always helpful to see people of history who've gone through similar things as us. Um, speaking of which, <laughs> uh, and I know you've kind of hinted at it already, but I was wondering, um, you know, especially in today's theologian groups, a lot of times women kind of feel exiled from, you know, the inner circles. Um, How, how, in what ways as a woman theologian, do you relate to Julian in your story?
2: She's um, a theologian who crossed all um, boundaries. So if, if you get the image of someone sitting alone in a cell, that's one image, but I look at it as the in-between place, between the village life, between the church life. She was not ever going back inside that church. She never crossed that threshold again. She never crossed the threshold back out into the world. She lived in that space. But because she lived in that space, she had a voice. And for a 14th century woman in the church, That was incredible. Yeah. And because she's in the church, as she's been approved, we'll say, to be there by the church, it's not likely that they're going to quiet her voice, though at the same time she didn't put these writings out for people while she was writing them. But she was very careful in her writing to not... um, cast dispersions on anything that the church might have been saying in fact she relates often to the holy church and she talks about that being where she belongs but she's got a different message and she's found a way to say it so i look at her as the woman who sort of overcame the boundaries of her day and spoke truth yeah it's
0: awesome awesome
1: yeah. so uh, what's one question you like to be asked when people are asking about you or your book?
2: Yeah, I think any thoughtful question that opens up the discussion is a good question. And I think that when I get a chance to talk about this, it just feels so... Um, so right, because I get to say it in my own words. And I also get to um, offer to people who might not know, like you said, you weren't familiar with Julian before now, an opportunity to see something that was significant at the time. She's actually come into popularity again, because of the pandemic. Um, Many people related to Julian of Norwich during the lockdown. Really, her popularity just sword. (laughs) Yeah. And her message of hope was part of that. So one of her famous quotes is all shall be well. You might have heard that along the way, or you've seen some kind of uh, poster or something. It's on a whole bunch of things. And all shall be well was a message that she received herself from God, but she passed that on to the rest of us. And now it's out there as part of her story. And that story is, um, is the, is the story of the past that's come forward into the, into the present.
0: Yeah, That's really a great line too. Yeah. So we talked, honestly, we talked about a lot of different themes today. Um, mm-hmm. thinking about exile, thinking about, um, women in theology and that in between place that a lot of us might find ourselves in. Um, We always like to bring things back to unity, sort of the purpose of our show. And for some of it, it's it's challenging, especially when you're considering um, some of the debates over women in the church today um, and throughout history. But uh, we do like to ask our guests, if you could just give us a single tangible action, just something practical people could go do that would help maintain the unity in the church. What's something practical you would have people do right now?
2: Yeah, well, I would welcome you to the Church of the Blue Dome, as I'm calling it, um, <laughs> which is, is an incredible experience because it's really not like anything that I've experienced. And I've, I've been an interfaith person for a long time, so I've been inside a lot of different houses of worship. This takes it out of that, and this gives us, all of us, an opportunity from our own homes to connect with people from around the globe and to understand that we don't have to be separate and to understand that we don't have to have our own theologies in their little boxes all the time to be in in a spiritual place and to be with God. And so I'm calling it the Church of the Blue Dome, but it's the interfaith um, experience there that you can have from your own home taps into something that might be new to you and i think anything that's new to you that opens up your our eyes and our vision and our understanding is a is a positive action
1: all right uh what do you what do you think would happen if everyone just checked out the church of the blue dome (laughs) Every once in a while.
2: Well, they've got like ten thousand followers. So my (laughs) guess is, if everybody checked out the church, they'd have like fifty thousand followers or or more. And I think that would be an incredible and um, great experience. Not, you know, for me in particular, but for all of us to know that. I mean, think about this: in any given Sunday morning that you you go to church. You know who's going to be there. You know pretty much how many people might be there. Um, you've been there enough times that you're familiar with, you know, the lay of the land. This is learning about other. And this is the chance to participate in something that's much bigger than yourself and much bigger than your own, you know, house of worship. So I think it would have a like one of those groundswell effects.
1: Who knows? We'll have to find out. I hope you do. But uh, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, So the last thing we like to do as part of the actual show is uh, our God moment segment, which is just a moment from recently in our lives where we've seen God, whether it's through a moment of worship or a challenge or a blessing. And I like to make Josh go first. Yeah. It's just easier that
0: way. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's going to be simple this week. Um, been doing finals. I have to study for the LSAT. I have a million and one things going on, two different podcasts, work, everything's happening. Uh, but, but yesterday my work system just went down. So I had the day off today and it's uh just been a good time of, you know, peace and just recuperating. And, uh, turns out I might've needed that more than I thought I did. So yeah, I'm gonna count that as a blessing.
1: All right. And, uh, I'll go next to our esteemed guest as much time as uh, she can have. But uh, uh, today I talked to an old friend for the first time in a long while. And now he might come over because, you know, he lives in Atlanta, which is not very convenient, Hmm. you know, for anyone. But I got to reconnect with him a little today. And uh, it's pretty great. It's nice to, you know, I'm a big friends guy. So. It's a pretty
0: great day. TJ's always reconnecting with someone, it seems like. It's true. I I feel like I should do do better at that.
1: I've known quite a few people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Marie, uh, do you have a God moment for us?
2: I do. And it's it's a little bit like your own, TJ. Um, So a very old friend, somebody I haven't been in contact with for maybe 35 years or more, um, which is a lifetime. Think about that, right? Um, reached out to me some time ago last spring, summer, something like that. And he was in a very bad place. And we had a lot of conversations over email and that sort of thing. And I really wasn't sure if he was going to make it through this because he was pretty desperate. Hmm. And I saw him last week, and that was for the first time in all those years. And I was just so awed by the fact that here he was, when he really was talking about not being here anymore, and mm-hmm. so that was a huge answer to a prayer.
1: Oh right. well, yeah, for sure. That's crazy. I don't. I haven't known anyone for thirty-four years.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Let's say, TJ, she won up to you, man. When was the last time you reconnected with someone after thirty-five years? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah.
1: not
2: recently. <laughs> you have to be on the planet a little bit longer, I
1: think. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day but uh,
2: I'm sure you will.
1: Yeah. So if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please consider sharing it with a friend or an enemy cousins, share it with whoever you want. Uh, everyone actually share it with, I want you to share it with everyone, <laughs> you know, and, uh, that would help us out a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Next year, instead of uh, doubling the amount of shares, let's triple three times what you did this year, guys. Oh man. Um, uh, so, uh, Ms. Marie Lore, uh, where can people find you, uh, find your books, follow your ministry, any of that?
2: Okay. Well, the book is The Usual Places that you know already, Amazon.com, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchorist in St. Augustine. And to find a way to connect to me, I would go to the Facebook groups, Return from Exile, Because there, we're talking about what's your pandemic story, and so the story is the connector. Obviously, we've talked about that already, and this is an opportunity for people who are listening to connect with me, but also to connect with others.
1: Wow! All right, sounds great. Some some future guests for the podcast. Uh, We have return guest Kelly O'Sullivan, longtime friend of the podcast and Anglican minister. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore, Director of Christianity at Today's Public Theology Project, a big seven-part series about church offices with 11 different church leaders contributing. That's from us and a bunch of other people. And maybe (laughs) Francis Chan.
0: Yeah, he doesn't know, but it is going to (laughs) happen eventually.
1: Francis Chan will be on the show one day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Then the season will end. Yeah. Thank you so much
1: for listening. Come back next week. Hop over to Patreon to hear the very last thing we do on the show.